Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to another session from our kickoff day for Connected Educators. Uh, this has really been a terrific day and a lot of fun, and I can't imagine a better moment right now than to hear from Deborah Meyer. She's our keynote speaker. If you are uh, just discovering Connected Educator Month, uh, please do sign up at the website, connecteducatormonth.org and you'll get updates on everything that's going on. The, um, today's been a fun-filled day. After Deborah speaks, uh, in two hours at 7 p.m., Chris Lehman is also going to speak. And then tomorrow, there's lots of fun that starts off with Douglas Rushkoff and other panels. So please stay tuned. If you can pull yourself away from the Olympics long enough, there's lots of good material. So uh, Deborah has been, uh, was a public educator for over 45 years. Um, her most recent book uh, was uh, Playing for Keeps, Life and Learning on a Public School Playground. And I must say, uh, we're really excited to have you here. I'm going to turn the time over to you. And then when you're ready, tell me, and we'll shift the Q&A. Um, hello there. Uh, I'm, um, I'm slightly intimidated by this format, but never, never too intimidating. So uh, it's good to be with you, and, and I hope you all stay on for Chris Lehman, who uh, is a good friend, and for years ran a, a marvelous school upstate New York. And um, he's one of the people who influenced me to go from being a kindergarten teacher um, to carrying out being a high school principal. Uh, and teacher in the middle of my career. Uh, I started out, in fact, as a, uh, as a substitute teacher. Some of you know that uh, nothing could be more horrible, difficult, and especially for someone who came, went into it uh, thinking it would be a cinch, a nice way to spend it, two days a week and make a little extra money. But I got interested in schools in the process, uh, and my own children were just about to start school. And uh, they were much more, um, they worried me more than I had even expected for our country as well as my own children. And But uh, I then had uh, an opportunity to teach half-time kindergarten and fell in love with being a teacher, not just thinking about the relationship between our schools and our democracy, which was the sort of the original impulse um, an impetus for my fascination. I was trying to figure out what about the schooling, the public schooling in cities like Chicago where I started, and the enterprise of democracy. What is it that spending 12 years in schools did um, to help you be a good citizen or to have no effect on citizenship or to actually discourage good citizenship? And um, I thought of kindergarten as kind of a distraction from that interest and just fell in love because they were so interesting. Kids were so fascinating. I just was filled with stories that maybe bored my friends, but um, there were always some friends who laughed at the right places and um, who encouraged me. And I even then went to Philadelphia for a year and taught four-year-olds, three and four-year-olds, had the first year of Head Start, then moved to New York City and taught kindergarten. And at some point, I uh, got an incredible offer from a superintendent in East Harlem to start my own school. And in 1974, I got a few friends of mine together, and we began a kindergarten through sixth grade school in East Harlem. And uh, it was... Uh, it was a enormously more difficult experience than I expected. There were issues that even among my best friends, I didn't expect disagreements. But here we were free to do what we wanted. And uh, we decided that the one thing we definitely wanted was to be a democratic community where every one of the voices of uh, the adults' voices, particularly the adults who worked in the school and who could meet together often, um, could be heard and acted upon that we didn't have to ask permission very often. We had to think about what parents would tolerate and what worked with kids. But um, we kind of 
brushed off all other considerations. And we had a superintendent, Tony Alvarado, who led us. And over the next 10 plus years, uh, we, we did lots of things wrong, but we did incredibly many things right. And the most right thing was relationships. The relationship between the adults, the um, capacity of adults to find the time to learn on the job and to go away together to contemplate what they had done, to visit each other's classrooms, to have time to sit down with parents and find out what they knew about their children, and to have them um, share with us aspects of the culture that we were entering that we might otherwise have been ignorant of. And we had a number of little crises between parents and staff and between members of the staff, and the struggling through those was, uh, we think, not only good for us, but helped us understand better what it means to have a democratic community, the kinds of compromises you can and can't make, um, you know, the kind of respect you have to have for each other, how hard it is to really listen to children, uh, your families, and um, your colleagues, and um, to listen in a way that left open the possibility that you were wrong and they were right. So even when five-year-old Daryl announced to me that um, rocks were living things, we were supposed to be teaching about living and non-living things, and he was absolutely tenacious. And he presented an argument in behalf of his theory that persuaded most of the kids and uh, made it hard for me to think what evidence I could bring to bear um, on my side of the argument. And um, I decided that we would leave it and come back another day. And we came back many other days struggling with the question of what do we mean by living and non-living and all the different ways of thinking about it, including Daryl's way of thinking about it. And consulting with local scientists, um, one of my close scientist friends told me, in fact, that he thought Daryl was on the edge the cutting edge of modern science, that living versus non-living is much more complex than we used to think it was. It, uh, it left, given that kind of open-mindedness, it left one always breathless with excitement. And the classroom itself then became a very different place when the adults in it were genuinely learning alongside of the kids. They brought to bear certain understandings that the kids didn't have, but it was of no use to the kids unless they could join each other. And joining with the interests of learners uh, isn't easy, but once you begin to get the knack of it, it keeps you uh, in, it keeps you intellectually alive yourself. And I think that the heart of what makes democracy possible. Not uh, inevitable, but possible. If we don't consider the possibility that we might be wrong, even on some rather fundamental questions, um, I think we are uh, much less accessible to our neighbors and our fellow citizens. And if we're less accessible, our voice won't be heard as well. And um, we won't have the patience to put up with democracy. Uh, in a, when we're in a hurry and when we think uh, we have to make a decision that it's very important, the natural tendency seems to be to uh, retreat to an authoritarian stance. Uh, democracy is often seen as a luxury. And if we want to see it, as an essential, an enormously important tool for, um, for bringing forth the very best qualities in human beings and in human civilizations, then we have to be patient with democracy. Um, you know, some people say to me, well, I, uh, you know, we lost when we tried that last time, so there's no point, I'm not going to try it again. And, um, if people change their mind as easily as we would like them to, then it means that uh, we would change our minds 
as easily as they would like us to. And um, those changing your mind all the time is is um, is a symptom of not taking anything very seriously. Being open is not the same thing as a, um, and acknowledging the importance of other people's ideas should not be confused to uh, giving in to everybody's ideas. That's your opinion. This is my opinion. Um, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm right. That should just be the opening to begin to discover and take apart your own understanding and other people's. And that's um, what we finally codified when we started the secondary school in East Charlotte called Central Park East Secondary School. We codified it to five essential habits of mind, which we said was what the, um, the common core curriculum of our school was. Whether we were teachers of science or teachers of literature or teachers of math or teachers of history, uh, there would be five questions which would be at the heart of our selection of, of curriculum as well as our pedagogy, how we taught things. And those five were, if I can remember them, um, the first one was, what's the evidence? How do you know that? How credible is it? And the second one was, uh, does it connect with other things you know? Is there a pattern here somewhere? And the third was, um, what if something had been different? What if Washington had died during the war, the Revolutionary War? Um, what if we had lost the Civil War? What if it had rained on last Tuesday? What if six, uh, what if uh, X plus four, the X is a six versus a four, what does it do? And so on, from science to literature to history, that what if question. And um, I'm leaving one out, but it doesn't matter. The last one was, who cares anyway? What difference does it make? And uh, these five habits, four of which I have just uh, tried to describe, were part of our conversation within school, part of our conversation in classrooms and staff meetings. And we tried wherever possible to show how they were useful on the playground, in the assessment of a basketball game, in looking at presidential elections, um, and looking at statements that people make in presidential elections. And, uh, and looking at our own lives and the lives of others. And it became kind of um, habits. What are habits? Habits are those things, whether they're good or bad, that are hard to get rid of. When I pass a person in the street, oh, when I pass someone in the street and it's begging, uh, I have a habit of wondering, what if I were them? Could that be? Could I be them? And uh, how could I? And I try, uh, especially where there are a lot of people begging in the street, uh, to prepare myself so that I have maybe a few coins that I can give and assuage my conscience, um, but not to walk past as though they aren't there. And that's a habit I can't get out of and many times would like to. I imagine one of them is my son. But would happen if this and this that. And um, it, I, I want the young people who go to our school to graduate with hard-to-break habits that make them good neighbors and good citizens. And I fear that very few schools in America might today even be able to explore that given the increasing use of standardized tests to measure ourselves and the use of standardized curriculum. Um, I think it's harder and harder to hear what kids and colleagues are saying. And it's harder and harder to think um, maybe answer B is the right answer, not C. Uh, the test maker says it's D, but maybe he's wrong. Maybe if he saw it this way or that way, we're uh, invested in spending, creating schools that spend 12 years focused on finding what someone else thinks are the right answer um, out of four or five. That's the opposite of what we need to build a culture that can maintain, sustain, and nourish democracy. That's in 
essence my argument. Thank you very much. Okay, that was fascinating. There are a number of questions in the chat about where can people find those uh, five essential habits of mind. <laughs> and, uh, oh, it looks like someone found it. Uh, Brenda Sherry put a link in the chat. Okay, so um, Deborah said that. Thank you, Brenda. That she's willing to take Q and A. So if you have questions that you'd like to ask, this is a time when you can either put them in the chat or you can raise your hand. To raise your hand, you click on the third icon over in the participant window, and um, that lets us know you want to take the microphone. So I know that you had talked about, um, in a phone conversation you and I had, about uh, how to survive in your native land. And I think you blogged on this as well. Um, does that, how does that tie in with what you've just discussed? Well, it's uh, it, what makes me kind of uh, sad these days. First of all, I'm sad because I'm not in the middle of a classroom. And being in the middle of school always kept me feeling hopeful about the world because at least uh, while I'm there, there's something I can do to create a wider and opener world. But uh, there is so much going on in our country today, in our native land, that I love so dearly, and uh, in our native planet, that uh, makes democracy seem irrelevant and makes us look upon the goal and purpose of education and life as uh, making a profit being efficient. Um, uh, and, and, and that was my phone ringing. Um, and uh, they lead us not to curiosity, but to calculation. And calculation has a role in life. I'm right now engaged in arguments with some friends about the value of uh, algebra. but. Um, to see schools turned into competing business entities measured by standardized tests of a standardized curriculum uh, suggests that we have sold out public education at a very uh, cheap price. <laughs> um, and then I, I fear for it having any future, much less a future devoted to promoting democracy. Um, schools are the way we raise our young, and they have a public as well as a private purpose. And the public purpose is to cherish some ideals that we share in common, and some ideals that we don't share in common, that we want others to be able to have a chance to hear. And um, if the only ideal that counts is uh, getting the right answer on standardized tests will lead you to make, keep your job, make more money, uh, be allowed to can go to a better college uh, so that you can get a better job. If that's the only um, ethos in which we are operating, um, democracy doesn't stand much chance. It's too complicated, too problematic an institution. It's too fragile and, uh, to survive unless it's very high on our list of priorities. So, uh, how do you survive? Well, you keep in mind that it's always better, it's always more exciting to do things that you believe in and to do things that you think are wrong. So you look for every opportunity that exists. Uh, my old mentor, Lillian Weber, used to say, you look for all the cracks in the sidewalk, all the cracks in the wall. And you try to think, uh, what can I push in there that would widen the cracks so that uh, we can put more good things on the table. I'm mixing so many metaphors. <laughs> um, but um, it means you frequently don't ask permission. You should ask forgiveness and permission, as I recall. Uh, you um, are a rebel where necessary. Uh, you do as little harm as you possibly can get away with, and none if you can. Um, I mean, you'll do, you'll do harm sometimes out of the best of intentions, but to do harm purposely because it will please your supervisors or the uh, legislators. Uh, well, sometimes you may even have to do that. 
That's one of the things we used to talk about at school. It's part of the relationship between grown-ups and young people to talk about trade-offs. Um, I, I would discuss with the kids in the morning uh, if I had gotten a traffic ticket on the way to school. Um, I would bring it up. How I handled it, was I right, was I wrong? Um, because these are questions that um, are, the, are fundamental. And we can't live faintly lives, perhaps, but we can, um, we can aim for it. And schools need to be fun and interesting. So um, it's, you pay a higher price for creating a fun and interesting and stimulating classroom. You get less praise for it. People come in and mark you down for it. And um, in some cases, you lose your job for it. Um, I think we each have every day of our teaching life have to think about that and think about it with our colleagues and think about what things we might do that are a little risky and a little more courageous to change the climate of our classroom, our school, and our nation on what the purpose of public education is. Reminded me of a saying my dad has often used. When it's hard to measure what's valuable, we end up valuing what's easy to measure. I'm wondering if uh, you're going to save our schools tomorrow, I think. And are you yes. seeing a shift in the ability for educators through social media to talk to each other in positive ways? Certainly your blog would seem to be an example of that. I hope so. I think there is a growing worry about uh, what's happening in American public education. The trouble is that um, while I see a growing sentiment building and coalescing around a critique of the current climate, the uh, bipartisan consensus uh, around a corporate-style education, um, that's growing, but if it's growing fast enough to stop the other side, I don't know, because the amount of money being spent, the amount of power being used to turn public education into a profit-making institution. You know, uh, someone asked, was it Willie, somebody, rather, why he robbed banks, and he said, that's where the money is. Um, well, uh, there's a lot of money in public enterprises, and schools are one of those places. We've begun to uh, do the same with pr public prisons. There are more of them are private. Um, we're perhaps about to make our coastal system private. And um, uh, the people who have power, I think, are consciously aware that they have to move very fast, so it will be hard for us to undo it, even if we finally reach get to a majority of the people. And they might be right. Uh, some things are hard to recreate. And public schools have been with us for 150 years. And if we let it go, it may be hard to recreate it. Um, I'm not sure, but I, would, I worry about that. And so, yes, there are, uh, I forget how many, but there are several thousands of people, and more importantly, in some ways, organizations and school boards who've signed on to a, a resolution against high-stakes testing. And uh, probably that's the first, one of the first things of importance. And I don't mean uh, just not too much of it. Of course, the more the, the worse. But um, high-stakes testing is, is nonsense. Because the higher the stakes, the less reliable is the data. There's no question about it, that we will, uh, almost all of us, if you make the stakes high enough, find a way to cheat the purpose of the test. You may cheat directly or indirectly, but um, we have made those stakes so high that it's hard for me to morally condemn those who find ways to get around it. But the tests have become our definition of what it means to be an educated person. 
we all know better, uh, but it's one of the hoops that we have obstacles courses. And kids who uh, refuse or teachers who refuse to see that as the purpose of their profession uh, pay a heavy price. And um, I, I don't know how to give advice to them, but the high stakes testing, I think, the opposition to high stakes testing, I think, is growing, even as the number of high stakes tests we're being measured by is increasing. And even as the number of purposes for which it's being used is daily increasing. And, uh, but I, I think there's growing skepticism among well-meaning people who are, have taken middle-of-the-road positions in the past. Uh, I can't remember. I've seen, read several columnists recently who, uh, in the past, uh, were not fans of standardized testing, but thought it was important to do, who were beginning to question it. Now, the, uh, the other threat is this uh, common curriculum, and the third threat is the privatization of the schools themselves, the schools being governed um, by people who have no uh, whose only stake in the school is financial. Um, and um, rather than by the parents and students in the school. In the 1960s, I was one of those people who thought both sides were wrong in the centralization, decentralization debates, uh, because I thought, um, in New York City at least, when we talked about decentralization, we were talking uh, about decentralizing schools so that um, the people in the district could have some voice in the decisions about the schools in their district, but districts were the size of the average American city in New York City. There were 30 districts. Districts rang from 25 to 45,000 students. Uh, and uh, it, it was, uh, I think, basically a good idea, but that it didn't go far enough because I think we have to wait the vote or the power or the influence of the people who are directly responsible in raising children, parents, teachers, and even students. Mission Hill, the school that we started in Boston, um, is a regular public school, so to speak. Uh, it's part of the union contract and supported by the union and management, <clears throat> but it has its own board. And part of the power of that board is fictional. Um, it could be taken away from us. But that board uh, is made up of a third of uh, people selected by the parents, a third of people selected by the staff, staff members. Actually, we did it on a rotating basis. And um, um, not only half, a third parents, a third faculty and staff. And the third people that those two groups together selected who were um, outside of the school, external, uh, external, respected external authorities of one sort or another, head of a museum, a former graduate, somebody who could give us a, a, a more distanced perspective on the school. And at some point we added um, students. Um, the school went to eighth grade and we added seventh and eighth grade students. And we, we developed a system for um, creating a a semi-consensus so that every one of those groups could veto uh, the critical decisions, who was, that is, the principal, uh, the handling of the budget, and so forth. Um, but so that there was a, a, a stake in our figuring out things together. And it worked efficiently and effectively for the many years, and it still works. So uh, that was, some people said it was like a charter school. Well, there's no reason why all of our public schools can't borrow the best of the charter schools and abandon the worst aspects of it. So I don't know how much time you had budgeted. Uh, do you have time for a couple more questions? Are there more questions? There was a good question that I... I mean, are there questions? There are questions. Oh, was, I, I can't tell when you're asking the question. <laughs> no, there is a question. So Ellie Fadden said, wanted to make this comment. She says, I do have to say that having worked in corporate America for a long time, there are some efficiencies that we can model. How do you respond to that? 
you know, in a school that um, cares a lot about what does, we're always interested in ideas. So, for example, um, and some of those ideas might come from corporations. They come from any kind of organization. And uh, I think we should be open both ways. I think uh, we have a lot to help corporations. I mean, you know, the corporations haven't done so well for us in the last 10, 15 years. But uh, so we have some things we might help them think about and they have some ideas we ought to think about. It's the, the relationship of power that concerns me. Um, so I'm not against um, corporations. I'm against their using their expertise in their own field to um, and the power that it has brought them uh, to to have a sort of a presumption about its effectiveness in other fields. Now they might be. You know, I have ideas about how corporations could be run more democratically and how they could pay more attention. As I, there was a period in which um, we were very fascinated by some of the work going on in Japanese corporations and um, ways in which they worked differently than American corporations. And um, I found some of those ideas very useful for me. Um, you know, Toyota, there's a book by, uh, I forget his name, I think his name is Brown, I can't remember the first name, uh, about Toyota. And, and, and he describes um, ways in which Toyota uh, decentralized its decision making and assessment systems in order uh, to catch mistakes and to be more efficient. So it, I, I think there are times in which hearing from the bottom and taking seriously the ideas of the people who are on the floor, if you will, on the ground uh, leads to more efficiency. So uh, there was two exceptions to democratic decision making at Mission Hill, <coughs> and uh, one was uh, uh, decisions that I, the technical principal of the school, thought were fiscally irresponsible and dangerous. And the other was uh, decisions that I thought endangered the safety and health of uh, any other human beings, children, faculty members, parents. Uh, my veto was not, um, it's a little like a president's veto, it wasn't the final word, um, but it meant that at least at the moment we couldn't go ahead on that road until we had worked out either among ourselves or with a mediator um, or with the changing of leadership. But um, locked in our decision making. And we don't have a good method except every four years for doing that in the United States. And that may be a problem, which some other democracies solve other ways. But yes, I, I think we have a lot to learn about the most effective way to manage our operations. So I'd love to hear yours. Am, am I right in remembering that you were a Deming fan? Yes, that's his name. Thank so, you. <laughs> I mean, one of his basic principles was driving out fear. Uh, and we hear a lot about trust, especially in, in the telling of the story of Finland. Um, how big, an, how important is trust to you in that relationship between um, administrators and teachers? Well, it's in, enormously important. And I wrote a book called "In Schools We Trust," trying to describe um, the kind of trust, because trust is a very open-ended word. You know. I'm, I could trust someone to teach me to fly an airplane who I wouldn't trust to babysit for my children. So it's not a question of trust or, you know, trust versus no trust. <coughs> and in fact, we had a wonderful evening session once at Central Parkie Secondary School on this question of trying with parents and um, their parents and their students and their children to discuss what it means my parents said, I don't trust you to take the car out tonight. That uh, and the kids would say, "Oh, you don't trust me." And say, "Yes, I trust you in some areas and not in others." But so uh, it's a it's a fascinating subject. 
first. But uh, just, I want to go back a step to your question about fear. I think the underlying um, issue, and it connects with trust, is that you're not a very effective learner when you're in a state of fear. Um, then you're thinking only about how to avoid the lion, the tiger, the F grade, the bully. Um, and it's, you, you sometimes have to function out of fear. But that the most important work we do in school, um, fear is an enemy. There's a wonderful book written 50 years ago by a man named John Holt. Um, the first book he wrote, he became a libertarian, uh, was a book about um, children's learning. And if there's anybody listening who remembers the name of that book, How Children Fail, or something like that. It, how Children Fail, I think. And his description of how we cover our tracks when we're afraid. And how, um, how inefficient it is to do so necessary at times. So you have to balance that. Um, it's true especially in schools because there's three levels of trust there, or four levels. There's students trusting that you have an agenda that's on their side. And that's a cause for a lot of problems that have racial overtones. What would lead children uh, who come from all African-American communities um, uh, to necessarily trust that this white teacher either has enough knowledge to be trusted or has good enough intentions to be trusted. And what makes their parents think so? And uh, there's nothing, no way you can get away from that. That's why it's so tragic that we have not solved in any way whatsoever the integration decision of 1954, imagine. Um, we were supposed to desegregate our schools and they're more segregated than ever. But uh, part of the reason is to begin to learn to trust precisely people whom um, it's harder to trust. And it takes a little bit more time. You can't just walk into the classroom and say, trust me. Uh, you have to become a trustworthy person to be trusted. And it takes time. And that's why I like small schools, and that's why I like to devote a lot of time uh, for families to get to know uh, people in school well, so that they can work through their issues of trust, because uh, it's hard to trust someone your parents don't trust. It's hard not to be afraid when you walk into school and withdraw your intellectual capacities. Uh, not think honestly and seriously about what's on the table, because you're afraid you're going to make a mistake, because you're afraid that person is trying to catch you in a mistake. You're afraid the kid next to you will laugh at you. All of these kinds of questions uh, where fear and trust uh, become counterproductive to each other. So, um, yeah, we need, and as I said, I, 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 what's eerie is um, I was leading a, a whole coalition, the Coalition of the Central Schools, on an agenda of creating more smaller schools in which people knew each other better, and uh, where possible schools of choice, led by Ted Sizer of Brown University and Harvard University. And in some ways, uh, the charter movement at first appeared to be um, kind of picking up that message. And I was rather excited. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, their message turned out to be something rather different. You've got a couple of questions from Scott in the chat. Uh, the first is, uh, he wants to know your thoughts on what's called open source education. Are you familiar with that term? Um, is it different than online? I think it, I think it would be. I don't want to speak for Scott, but I'm thinking that it relates to uh, open content, openly available uh, content that's licensed for free. Um, Scott, maybe you can correct me in the chat if I'm not getting that exactly right. Yeah, he's saying open and free well, content. It's 
possible for me to be against opening as much knowledge as possible and as freely as possible. So yes, um, I, I'm for opening it. And a good classroom turns down no source, um, even wrong sources, because learning how to judge a source doesn't work in a classroom if the teacher only presents uh, sources that she thinks are foolproof. So you have to expose kids to many different kinds of sources of information and um, let them fool around with it and play with it and explore it with those five habits of mind in their minds as they do so. But maybe Scott has some other... No, I think it was exactly right. He also asks about um, other metrics and learning analytics. And I'm wondering if there's another lesson from Deming. So in a world in which there's an increasing ability to measure and store data, is part of the difficulty that oftentimes that data is thought of as being part of an authoritarian structure rather than kind of a dashboard for the learner, him or herself? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, data is, um, data can be a uh, way of manipulating you. And uh, so data is, if the data is correct, um, it says one thing, but even you can even have correct data that is placed in the wrong context. It's correct for a certain context. And that's partly what all those habits of mind were about, was to try to be able to uh, take almost any object and play around with it to see all the potential ways of assessing it and seeing its value. You know, um, uh, I was just talking to someone about the Consumers Union, which I, magazine I get. And what's fascinating is to think about how they assess products, products that are completely standardized. And uh, they, they treat that standardized product with more respect than the school systems treats the un, totally unstandardized product of human beings. So, for example, if they're judging a car, they, uh, they you know, they're looking at this, uh, inside dimensions, how much storage it has, how fast it will go, how much gasoline it will use, uh, whether the dashboard is simple, whether it's uh, to use, whether it is a smooth ride. I, I, you know, quite a list and probably leaves off a few things. And what they're expecting you to do um, is not for them to choose the car for you, but for you to use that data in a way that is related to your, your goals and your agenda. Now, we're treating people, people, not products. We're treating unstandardized human beings. And we think we can sum them up in two or three um, measures. And, um, and somehow, in this incredibly important question of how we spend our life from the age of three to four, to 18 to 21, um, uh, we have this bizarre, absurd, ridiculous assessment system in which we count the views of the people who know that individual as least important precisely because they too are unique and unstandardized. So um, it's like we're living in another world and pretending. We're pretending that there is such a thing as a standardized, unbiased system for making judgments uh, that are of great importance about complex human beings. Um, I find it so absurd that sometimes I have a difficult time arguing logically about it because I can't think about how anyone could have ever imagined that this was a sensible thing to do. Um, uh, sometimes I've given kids all the same question to answer by themselves, and then we've explored afterwards the differences. But yes, they're sometimes worth giving a standardized question precisely so you can explore the different ways human beings have of answering. And I did that with standardized tests uh, many times, and I wrote a little book about it. If you go to my website, debramire.com, um, you can find among my articles, articles I wrote about 
uh, these interviews. One of them was called Reading Failure uh, and the Chess, or Chess and the Reading Failure. Uh, I can't remember the title exactly. It was written in the 19, early 1970s. And it um, was a sort of a written account of my uh, interview with children about why they gave answer A, B, C, or D. And uh, it was breathtaking because the smartest answers were often the wrong answers. And some of the dumbest answers in an interview were often the right ones. And I sometimes myself got unsure about which was the right answer. Now generally I knew, I knew because I knew how test makers think. And I knew what they were looking for was a kind of cliched response. Um, but as children, the younger they are, the less they are aware of all the cliches. If you ask a three-year-old what's the opposite of night, they will not say day. Uh, we've learned that. And because opposite is actually a very complicated idea. And so part of it we just learn by rote. And part of it we learn by putting together a whole series of experiences with the idea of opposite. Anyway, I've just, the, the potential we have for being smart is so much greater than we're allowed to exercise. And we do, the younger we do that, the more dangerous. So we probably have time for one more question, then we need to let Deborah go. If you have a question you'd like to put in the chat, or if I've missed a question, please post it again, and I uh, will try and attend to it. Or you can raise your hand by clicking on the raise hand icon in the... Yeah, and you can also ask me uh, through email and uh, website. Terrific. And it's DebraMeyer.com, right? Right. M-E-I-E-R. Oh, it's up there on the screen. So uh, Jackie Gerstein asks, do you have recommendations for teacher education to make these changes? Uh, you would need very courageous teacher educators who I think are collapsing even faster than teachers. Um, look at the field of early childhood. <laughs> I, I just a complaint. I mean the early childhood organizations. Individual educators and the NAUIC uh, should have just stood up a long time ago and said, this is absurd. This is not what we know young children is good for young children. And instead of which, we're always looking for how we can adapt. So I think um, a lot more. I used to say if you have tenure but you can't even be brave once you have tenure anymore. Uh, we, we have to get enough of us to be brave, and that's, that's why I'm encouraged by groups like the SOS. Uh, I would, it would be wonderful if, if we could found a way to get 100,000 teachers someday uh, together in one place to say, no, we're, we're, not, we're not budging. And uh, will they find the people who replace us? Uh, well, that's that's a worry of mine. I have lately had unemployed 50-year-old children. We live in a time which it's hard for people to say, I'm willing to risk even my job or my beliefs. But um, write anonymous letters if you must. We have got to stop this. We have got to. And um, the more we care about our work, the more determined we have to be not to allow people to think we just go along. Now, of course, there are unions out there. And if we fall for the nonsense that unions are our enemy, that has been perpetuated. Um, the Chamber of Commerce is a collection of businessmen. And uh, they have their faults as an organization. They probably don't vote on everything. Uh, but somehow or other, we have been bullied into thinking that our unions um, are our self-interest rather than the way in which we speak collectively about conditions that, you know, a businessman wants to make a profit. He says that, quite frankly. Teachers want to make a good salary. We say that frankly. Uh, but we want other things as well. 
and would like to think that the Chamber of Commerce wants other things besides to make money. But we sure do. But we don't have to be embarrassed by the fact that we also want a good salary and social security and political plans. And we can't bargain for that individually. We have to work with that collectively. So that's a place where we need to pour some energy. And then the professional organizations who have, to a considerable degree, uh, capitulated uh, on a great many issues facing us today. Uh, there's nothing wrong with a common core curriculum, except if it's mandated and it's assessed by a single tool, uh, or especially a high-stakes one. Uh, you know, I, I always found the uh, New York City manual on suggestions for what we should teach in kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, very interesting. Some of them were put together by wonderful people. But I never let it uh, interfere with what I could see from my eyes, which is that children were excited by something and we had to stick with it rather than move on next week to the next item in our curriculum. So we have to hold on to that unique power we have as the people closest to the children within the school system. And uh, we have to find every organized and disorganized way we can to reassert our influence. There are a lot of us. And do, do uh, read my blogs and read, uh, go to look at my suggestions for books to read. and. A lot of the articles in my bibliography are uh, available with a click. So, thank you all for listening to me. Deborah, thank you so much. I am clapping, which we do here by hovering over the smiley face and going down to the applause button. So appreciative of your being here with us tonight. Thank you, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks to Deborah Meyer, DebraMeyer.com. In an hour, we get to hear from Chris Lehman. We'll go ahead and turn the recording off here and close the room. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody, and good night. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Steve. Can you tell Steve?